At Baptist Health South Florida, it's our mission to care for you when you're injured or sick and help you stay healthy and fit. Welcome to the Baptist Health Talk podcast, where our respected experts bring you timely, practical health and wellness information to improve your family's quality of life. Welcome Baptist Health Talk podcast listeners. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Fialco. I'm a preventative cardiologist and lipidologist at Baptist Health's Miami Cardiac and Vascular Institute, where I'm also Chief of Cardiology at Baptist Hospital and Chief Population Health Officer at Baptist Health. There's a phrase we use to describe the determination it takes to get through an illness or other challenges, and that's, it's just a question of mind over matter. But that's more than a saying. There's widespread medical evidence that demonstrates the power of the mind to affect our physical state. One example is the topic of today's episodes, which is the placebo effect. Why do certain actions, like taking a tablet or a pill, make things better when there's no active component in what's taking that would otherwise affect our body? And alternatively, why do certain people feel bad effects, side effects, from things that actually have no specific ingredients that would otherwise explain those problems? Joining me today to explore this fascinating phenomenon is Frank Zamora, a pharmacist who's the clinical coordinator for drug information at Baptist Health South Florida. Welcome to the podcast, Frank. Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. I appreciate it. Um, Frank, and again, appreciate your time and your expertise. Um, so let's just start with definitions. Um, you know, we kind of, everyone kind of knows, oh, it's a placebo effect, which means there's nothing really happening, but you feel better. I, I mentioned the term nocebo, which is the official term. Could you just quickly define for the listeners placebo and nocebo? Of course. And as you said before, uh, the time goes back to ancient Greece, where mind over matter is a very well-known phrase, where the thought process was that really the mind will affect the uh, health um, of the body, if you wanted to put it that way. So in regards to concepts, I think it's important to know that placebo is just really a substance without medical benefits, which he has n- not supposed any, um, any health effect um, in the studies or the, the scientific studies, we refer to placebo as a substance that really uh, the control group actually take and will have no effect uh, whatsoever in whatever it is that we're trying to measure. In contrast to that, nocebo is basically defined as a substance without any medical effect, but which worsens the health status of the patient that is taking the, 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 taking the medication, most importantly, because of the negative belief that the patient has in regards to that specific substance. So as you, as you well articulated, placebo is generally a positive response, someone feeling better, pain going away, et cetera, which we'll talk about, and nocebo might be the perceived negative response. Because again, I think in conventional wisdom, we call them both placebo effect, but there is a scientific or at least a, a well-defined term. So, you know, I, I, I tell the story to my patients quite frankly uh, and quite frequently when we talk about this. When I was in my training, you know, which is quite frank, which is, I say quite frankly, it, st- it startles me. It was 35 years ago. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I did my medical training in an, inter- in an inner city hospital in New York City, and we would have a lot of substance abusers coming in, and there was a withdrawal from narcotics, heroin. And these were young people and their blood pressure was 220 over 140 and their heart rate was 130. They were in distress. They were in agony. And now again, listeners, this was, this was you know, close to four decades ago. We would put an IV in and we'd give them, we'd say, we're giving you morphine, we're giving you morphine, but we'd be giving them saline. And it's one thing, we'll say the placebo effect for them to feel better, 
but their heart rate came down to normal. Their blood pressure came down to normal. And of course, we weren't giving them anything active. So can you speak a little bit about, you know, what are those conditions? Here's a case of people writhing in agony and pain and something happened, which didn't just say I feel better, but physiological responses. So where do you see the more common conditions where a placebo effect can take place and maybe in a beneficial way? So um, to that, um, I think that it would be important to define how this is actually looked at from the scientific perspective. There are really three uh, thought processes here. One is the expectation model, which is really what you're uh, describing, which is the expectation of a patient that basically getting a specific substance will have a certain effect. And this is really true in addiction medicine, as, as you put it. Uh, there is a whole ordeal of uh, work that goes into obtaining a legal substance. And that anticipation makes the substance more pleasurable once the patient actually takes it. Um, another thought process is the reflex model. And that basically goes to conditioned reflexes in regards to uh, substances or things that we do that consciously or unconsciously will make us feel better or worse. And then there is a third model, which is the placebo analgesia, which is just basically the same, the first two models intertwine. And uh, the, the, th the scientific community really believes that there is just not one model over another, that these two or three models, they just basically complement each other. Um, one experience that I have was um, after my residency years, I went to practice at uh, Yale New Haven Hospital, I'm originally from Philadelphia, so I stayed in the Northeast. And um, part of my purview was sickle cell anemia, which, as you know, is just very complicated patients with uh, extreme pain. And to talk about the expectations of uh, those patients, uh, looking at the flip side of that, when you tell a patient that is in such distress that you're going to start titrating down opioids because the patient is actually getting better, you will see an uptick on the patient's um, desire of getting more opioids. And this is uh, measurable. When you have patients, for example, on PCAs, and you can take a look at the EMR, and see how many times they actually click the button. And it's just basically because uh, there is like a level of anxiety that that communication generates with the patient. The same will be truth if you're talking, that's why communication is so important between clinicians and patients. Uh, that level of anxiety going down based on what the physician or the clinician is telling the patient. So it's a, it's a fascinating um, 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 um kind of situation that you just um, uh, you just articulated. Um, but but I, I, I appreciate the original comment. The anticipation of effect can actually help the actual effect be achieved um, is what we're kind of saying. And that does come into why pain conditions, depression, you mentioned sleep, uh, other medical conditions tend to lend themselves better for a placebo effect because people want it to feel better. And, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about um, how that could be abused also. And I say abused, which is certain substances get sold with no active ingredients saying, oh, you'll feel better, you'll sleep better, you'll forget less. And the patient wants it to, to happen and they actually say, yeah, it's really working. 
But the reality is there's nothing in it. And if we gave them, you know, um, uh, even a sugar pill or something simple, they might feel better. How, how much of the anticipation of thinking the substance or the intervention, let's say, makes them better is important? So specifically, if someone knows they're being given a placebo, listen, I'm giving you a placebo. And actually, I remember this ad, I forgot where it was, where there was this new wonder drug that cures everything called placebo. And it was also a drug that caused every problem on the planet, which was placebo. But if someone's told, like, like for example, the, the anecdote I gave, if we say, listen, we're giving you saline, but you're going to feel better, do you, would it have the same effect as if they think they're getting something that would actually explain them feeling better? In other words, if they know they're getting a placebo, would it affect um, the benefit and efficacy of the placebo function? In my clinical experience, I think it's important to stratify those patients because there are certain conditions where that expectation is more pronounced than others. Uh, so anything that is actually related to subjective uh, matters, like pain, for example, or depression, you will see in those cases that the expectation or the placebo effect will be more pronounced. But when you start looking at other conditions, like for example, an infection, it will be really hard for me to say that you can just take a, a placebo and get rid of, uh, epi, um, I don't know, pseudomonas in the blood. A bacteria, sure. So. Right. So, I mean, you really need the antibiotic. The placebo is not going to do anything. So I think that it will, it's important to basically box in that conditions that are uh, basically measured in subjective um, um, items, just per se, pain, depression, uh, things like that um, are more prone to uh, the placebo and nocebo effect than other conditions. Um, you're a cardiologist. I, I, I'll, I'll think that you will agree with me that if you don't give a patient an ACE inhibitor, a patient that has heart failure, that remodeling will continue. No, I, I appreciate that. And we've seen that in other areas. It's been established. And a lot of times, even in my practice, when I have a person with a condition and I, I get them on board as to why we're using the medication, what its benefits are, and that it's been shown to be effective, I think we're more likely to get a good response, but not necessarily in blood pressure or a blocked artery, but in more perceptions of symptoms and things like that. So I think that's something we can use. And that comes back a little bit, Frank, and, and this is just you and me spitballing here. You know, it's an ethical issue because on the one hand, if the goal is to make someone feel better, if the goal is to make someone's pain get better, and we can use something that's safe and cheap and has no functionality, but they get better, isn't that the goal? On the other hand, we don't want to trick the patients. We can't be so patronizing to make decisions for people. So it does become something that I think our medical ethicists have to define a little further, which would be going back to the original premise, the role of placebos intentionally. Now, if I give someone that's harmless something and I say, listen, people feel really better with this and I know it's harmless and I know it's cheap and they feel better, um, you know, is, is that wrong? I personally don't do that. I feel I really have to let the patients know what we know and what we don't know about things and they can make their own decisions. But um, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, you, you, you are, you know, you are in the clinical support role. Do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. And um, there is a uh, very heated debate in regards to Helsinki, for example, whether um, uh, when the patient uh, gives you permission to do a study, whether that's actually enough from the ethical perspective. And I think that I will agree with you in the sense that I would not be the type of clinician that will treat the patient uh, with, uh, with placebo, even if the patient gave me the consent just for ethical purposes, right? Uh, but uh, there is 
good information also there to say that that should not um, branch out into bizarre treatments or, or supporting things that we know right. for a fact that from the medical evidence perspective really have no effect on people and support those treatments. I think that that's misleading. So, so let's take that to the next component, which is uh, the nocebo effect or the side effects or perceived side effects. And, and for the viewer, for the listeners, um, I think um, most people uh, may understand this, but when clinical trials are done, usually there's an intervention, let's say a new medication, and we're looking to achieve something, lower your sugar, give you better sleep, et cetera, et cetera. And the trials are done by taking populations of people and half of them generally get the medication and half get a placebo which means they get a pill, but they don't, and the patient, the subject, doesn't know if they're getting the, the placebo or the active medication, nor does the doctor who's doing the research. So if people complain of things, then later on, it's like, were well, you on the placebo or not? The reason I bring that up is twofold. The main thing is when you look at the side effects of placebos, and I use that as a little bit of a euphemism, people who are taking nothing, it's a little talc tablet, a little sugar pill, the complaints they have I had diarrhea, I couldn't sleep, I gained weight. They were taking nothing. So again, it shows that nocebo effect. So can you speak a little bit in the true clinical scenarios, how that can impact our ability to treat people and manage people? Absolutely. And I have two great examples. I was talking to uh, some of my colleagues yesterday, uh, just in preparation for the podcast today and whatnot. And uh, some of my colleagues actually do medication reconciliation for patients that are getting discharged from the hospital after uh, surgery, whatever have you. And about 30 plus percent of those patients, when the pharmacist is about to counsel them in regards to side effects, they say, no, no, I don't want to hear any type of... um, side effects because I know for a fact that if you tell me that I'm going to develop something, I will have that in a week and I'm going to go back to the doctor's office and tell them that I have hallucinations, that I have high blood pressure, that I have syncope, that I have this and that I have that. That's one. And that is actually very real. That happens in our practice all the time. The other example that I want to bring is something that goes back to my residency years. So my second year residency, we did a uh, a study that was a small study, open label, there was no blinding or anything like that about drug X. And drug X was supposed to decrease the amount of opioids that the patient will consume after orthopedic surgery on the back end after 72 hours uh, post-surgery. Uh, a very small but significant percentage of the patients that we looked at, we actually saw an uptick in opioid consumption uh, on the back end. And we couldn't understand exactly why that was. And these patients were really away from uh, the mean. There were like two or three standard deviations away from the mean. And the only thing that I can think of is that there was actually a nocebo effect in there. The patients heard that they were going to be treated with a drug that will decrease opioid in the back end. And what they probably heard was that we were not going to give them opioids to control their pain, which in fact, that was not the case. And that generated a type of anxiety and predisposition where the perception of the pain was much, much higher in that subset of patients and therefore had a clinical impact in uh, an increase in opioid consumption on the back end. So those are two good examples of what comes to mind when it comes I'm to think, I'm thinking on a, I'm thinking on a not less important but much more frequent basis is the use of statins 
you know, the medications we use to prevent heart attacks and strokes in high-risk people. And studies show that one is 25 times more likely to complain of muscle pain on a statin if they know that statins cause muscle pain than if, you, if they're not aware. Um, so again, it goes back to that, uh, that, that anticipation predisposition. Um, last thing I just want to comment on, and again, I think it's just something that I, I, I discuss a lot with my patients and I want to bring up and, and get your opinion. You know, the package insert and maybe an extrapolation of that, but we go online and look for information. When, when the package insert lists reported side effects on a medication, it should be noted that's anything anyone ever complained of on the medication. That doesn't half the people in the trials are on placebo, and if they complain of something, it still gets put in the package insert. So Correct. the package insert doesn't say that medication causes that. It just says someone in the trial complained of it. And what I always challenge people is look at it like a horoscope, because when you read the package inserts, everything will be in there. It'll say it causes insomnia, and you'll say, "Yeah, I can't sleep." And right next to it will say sleepiness. But you don't look at that because you can't sleep. It'll say it may cause weight gain and right next to it, anorexia. So it's like even these things that don't make any sense, but people see what they want to see. You know, the package insert ideally would say people on drug, 10% complained of this, 1% on placebo. Then you can say, oh, yeah, 10% more likely. It doesn't show that. So do you get involved with questions that people have or having to talk people through what they read on those package inserts, which, like I said, it's an FDA regulation, but it really, to me, as a doctor, provides no real value towards, towards disseminating appropriate information. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, for the most part, uh, you don't go too much into the nitty-gritty uh, with the patients, unless, uh, well, unless the patient that I'm treating is, has a doctor's degree or a higher level of education, mostly because these things are actually reported in the package insert in very high-level statistics. But I think that it is important to also address that this effect is not discussed enough in our package inserts. As you said, the package insert only just basically gives you a review of the side effects, but it doesn't really focus or at least bring into, into consideration that um, there is a placebo effect in here and there is a set of side effects that perhaps are not related to the actual active principle. I give you a great example um, about this, and I hope this is not too too high level. If you're taking an antidepressant X and you have a number to treat to be ten, uh, that means that every ten patients, I had to treat ten patients for one to have basically benefit from that particular antidepressant. What that means on the flip side is that nine patients out of those ten will benefit from a placebo medication that really have no clinical uh, effect whatsoever. And I don't think, in my opinion, me being a person that <laughs> reads package inserts for a living, that those kind of things are very well defined in package inserts. And I think that that's important when we actually talk to our patients. As you said, that uh, just to bring about that, yes, there, there is a multitude of side effects in the package insert description, but perhaps some of these side effects really are not related to the active uh, drug. You know, I, I really appreciate your, uh, as I said, your uh, ability to articulate these concepts, bring us up to speed a little bit on what's going on in the, in the science behind placebos and nocebos. And, and I think that's the key, the key um, takeaway. It's a science. It's real. It happens. There's neurochemical and other components which make it happen. So where we go with it in our medical practitioner, 
uh, as medical practitioners, uh, the use of placebos, the recognition of placebos, as well as perceived but not really specific to an intervention side effects. It's, uh, it's kind of the art of the practice of medicine in a lot of ways. Uh, so again, I really appreciate your time. Uh, I enjoyed the conversation. I always love when I learn from our guests and I learned uh, a bit from you. Um, any final thoughts, any final comments, especially uh, maybe, you know, in the final comment, I know your, your title is um, uh, the clinical coordinator for drug information. Maybe spend a, a minute at the end, just letting folks know, you know, what, what that role entails. Um, okay. Um, and actually, I have a question for you as well. Sure. So um, the question is, like, what do you think uh, the role of teaching placebos and nocebos is in a medical school or any type of graduate school? I don't think that we emphasize that enough. At least I don't remember anything like that on my uh, doctor. So, I mean, you know, you're, ask, you're asking a dinosaur here because it's been some time, <laughs> but certainly, certainly in, in speaking to the young doctors that I've recruited and work with and stuff, it's, it's not in the wheelhouse. I don't think we actually do a good job of teaching real world discussions with patients. We do a lot on the science and we do a lot of, you know, an appropriate on empathy, but like the kind of real world conversations you have, pushbacks one will get. Um, um, so we could do a better job of that because again, the, the conversation, the understanding and conversations of placebo and nocebo help you be more patient centric in your approach. You know, and I know if a patient is very like, I, I hate medications, I don't want to be on medications, I don't want to, you know, and they may need a medication, I might approach a little bit differently, give them reassurance, expect a complaint of being on the medication. Um, um, so I think um, the short answer is I, I am sure we could do a better job of it along with some other things. But I can tell you practitioners will get exposed to it pretty quickly when they enter practice and will start putting it into their, <laughs> into their thoughts when they start dealing with patients. I agree. And for our viewers, the clinical coordinator of drug information Really what it does is provide um, clinical information and uh, references to any type of internal medicine uh, project. Internal medicine basically means anything. So I'm here to provide clinical support all the way from uh, the optimization of power plants to uh, research that we actually do uh, in-house or just basically to um, identify uh, areas of opportunity for improvement in our clinical practices. That's that's really my job at Baptist Great, and it's a great resource uh, to have uh, folks like yourself uh, when, we, when we're taking care of patients. So again, to the, yeah, I think we both use the term um, of viewers instead of listeners <laughs> as a podcast. It's, you don't know, but Frank and I are looking at each other on a Zoom, so I think that's why we get confused, but it's uh, to our listeners. Um, but uh, you know, again, great stuff to the, to the listeners, you know, Nothing wrong with placebo effects. When, when someone's trying to sell you something that'll make you feel better or has these miraculous benefits, it's your money. It's probably not dangerous, but uh, you know it may be a placebo effect if, in fact, you, you think it's helping you. Um, and again, to our listeners, if you have any comments or suggestions for future topics, please email us at baptisthealthtalk at baptisthealth.net. That's baptisthealthtalk at baptisthealth.net. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And thank you very much, Frank. Find additional valuable health and wellness information on our resource blog at baptisthealth.net slash news. And be sure to interact with us on our social media channels for live and upcoming events. This podcast is brought to you by Baptist Health South Florida, healthcare that cares.